Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read 1 Peter chapter 2 through 1 Peter 3 verse 22. We're only going to study the first two verses of our reading this morning, but I want to read this entire section. So 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our own sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adorning be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid of any terror. Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and the reading of it. I pray that you'd be with us as we uh, move through 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12 this morning. Help us to learn what you would have. I uh, pray that you would bless this time. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> it struck me as I was thinking about this, it struck me many times as I prepared uh, to, to teach on 1 Peter, that you know we're studying a letter that was written by a Galilean fisherman thousands of years ago. Um, and we don't know exactly what the process of inspiration is like. We, we recognize that, that these books are inspired. Um, and this, this letter that was originally written on some type of vellum uh, parchment and was bound, it was probably originally maybe in scrolls and eventually was bound into this, this book as part of the, the sacred treasure of Holy Scripture that we received from God. I mean, did Peter, what did Peter know when he was first writing this? He was a, a Galilean fisherman, and he wrote this. And I wonder if he imagined that thousands of years later we'd be studying this in, in a different language. But it's, it's easy to forget this was a letter. Uh, Peter wrote this letter to encourage saints who were scattered uh, throughout Asia Minor, throughout uh, the, the, the locations he lists there in verse 1, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Uh, and people would have consumed this letter in one sitting. It probably would have would, would have been brought to the weekly assembly and, and read out loud. We got a letter from Peter. This is what he has to say. And so sometimes it's good to step back and, and look at this in larger chunks or, or even uh, in full. It only takes 12 or 15 minutes to read it to yourself. Um, but we do like to study word by word because we do believe the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost spoke through Peter. Uh, and each one of these words and phrases is very important for us to think about and study. Uh, but also it's good to appreciate the, the larger chunks and not lose the forest for the trees, as they say. Uh, two of the big themes that Peter develops throughout this letter are uh, the idea of being a pilgrim, this pilgrim mindset. He opens the book and it's addressed to pilgrims or exiles or strangers, depending on your translation. That's in verse uh, uh, 1 of chapter 1. And then uh, we studied a little while ago in verse 17 of chapter 1, he calls our stay here on earth, he calls it the time of our sojourning, um, this time of our pilgrimage. And then this morning, uh, he calls us sojourners and pilgrims. Um, so this is a theme that he's very much trying to develop, this idea of being temporary residents. 
Another theme that he develops that's related is an eschatological hope. Uh, he constantly directs our attention to the world to come, to the unseen world. Um, in uh, chapter uh, 1, verse 5, he says, uh, we're to look for the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Uh, in both verse 7 and 13 of chapter 1, he says we're waiting for the appearing or the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what we're waiting for, this salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Today, he talks about the day of visitation, this future day on which the, the good works of the saints will be, will be uh, made to count, to, to glorify God. Uh, and then, then even in, uh, in chapter 4, he talks about uh, how he's ready to judge the living and the dead. He stands ready to judge the living and the dead. So there's much eschatological hope uh, in this letter. And what we're going to look at today is the beginning of this section uh, in, that begins with 11 and 12. And what Peter's really doing in this section, from I think from chapter 2, verse 11, all the way through chapter 3, is he's turning from our responsibilities toward God to address how we uh, interact with our fellow man. So if you remember last time we spoke, we talked about uh, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. And in that section, he talks about um, our relationship with other believers, living stones with every other believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, built into that one holy spiritual house that is the one body of Christ. We're built together. That's our relationship with other believers. We're also priests. Every single believer is a priest. There's no clergy lady distinction. This is a, this is a priesthood of all believers. All of us have both the obligation and the, the, the privilege of offering spiritual sacrifices to God that are acceptable only through Jesus Christ, as he says in, in verse 5 of chapter 2. But this is dealing with our relationship mainly, primarily with, with God. Um, and now, it's beginning in verse 11, he turns toward how do we interact with those outside. Um, he calls them Gentiles here, which this word Gentiles really just refers to uh, those who would have been persecuting the church outside of outside of the church in Asia Minor. This is a, a Gentile area. There's a lot of discussion about the audience of 1 Peter. Was it primarily a Jewish Christian audience or a Gentile Christian audience? Or, or who is he writing to? Um, I don't think that... I, that's not something we're going to get into today. Just know that the Gentiles that he's referring to are those unbelievers who would have been, as a matter of historical fact, the people who were speaking evil of any saints in Asia Minor, because that is people who made up the surrounding area. And so for our purposes, when we see Gentiles, we can think unbelievers, unbelieving, surrounding neighbors. But in this section, uh, he addresses first, he lays down these fundamental principles. We are to abstain from fleshly lusts, and we are uh, to interact with Gentiles in this particular way. And then he unpacks it in these following sections. Verse 13 to 17 of chapter 2, he talks about our relationship to government. The next little section there, and it, it may be marked in the chapter heading in your Bible, uh, there's submission to masters or employers. So our interaction with governments, our interaction with employers, and then he addresses uh, spousal relationships. There's instruction to wives and to husbands. Uh, finally, there's some instructions for, for uh, interacting with other believers. And then, and then he points us to Christ, who's our ultimate example, who suffered uh, not for the evil, because Christ did know you would suffer for good, and that's what we should do. When we suffer in this world, it shouldn't be because we are um, doing things that are wrong or because we're, we're doing things that we should rightly suffer for. If we suffer, it should be because uh, 
uh, of the good that we're doing. And then finally, he concludes with, with this section from verse 18 down to 22 of chapter 3. Um, and he really, I think, unpacks some of the mysteries of the cross. Um, this is a, a beautiful section. He talks about the, the victory into which we've been baptized. Lord willing, coming uh, months, we'll study all of these different topics. But for this morning, we're going to focus on verses 11 and 12. And really with these verses, Peter's answering the question, um, how shall we then live? How are we to live in light of the fact that we are priests to God, that we're these, this chosen people, this holy nation, like he calls us in, in verse 9? Um, how are we to live and interact with the world around us? He opens this section by reminding us that we are sojourners and pilgrims. That's the fundamental mindset that we have to have. We're sojourners, we're pilgrims. This is a temporary dwelling place for us. There are really three things I want to look at this morning. First is, what do you mean by sojourners and pilgrims? Uh, we'll deal with that briefly. Next, I want to look at this idea of abstaining from fleshly lusts or passions of the flesh. And then third, I want to take a look at uh, this idea of, of our good works and uh, the relationship of our good works to our, to our fellow man and the, the intended effect of those good works. So first, let's talk about pilgrims and sojourners. Um, we've looked previously at a definition of pilgrim that we find in Hebrews 11. If you want to turn there, we're going to read Hebrews 11. Uh, and we're going to read verses 13 to 16. Hebrews 11, 13 to 16. This is, I think, the a key passage in understanding what the Bible means when it talks about being a pilgrim. Speaking of Abraham's descendants, verse 13 of chapter 11 says, These all died in faith. All of Abraham's descendants. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So they said that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. It says verse 14, For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. A pilgrim is someone who seeks a homeland, meaning the pilgrim is not in his homeland. The pilgrim is someone who is traveling through one land with a destination always in mind. A pilgrim doesn't get comfortable and doesn't make his home in the land that is not his own. A pilgrim might stay, if we think of sort of a, uh, like the, the, the pilgrim in Peter's day or, or like a medieval pilgrim, a pilgrim might stay in an inn, but he's not going to buy a home because he's going somewhere. He might stop at a tavern and buy a meal, but he's not going to buy a farm. Uh, a pilgrim might meet with friends along the way who can travel with him for a certain certain period of time, but if those the friends' paths diverge from the way of the pilgrim, then the pilgrim will take his leave and continue on because he has his destination always in mind. He knows where he's headed, and he's moving to another land. Now, a pilgrim has to leave some things behind. A pilgrim can't carry everything. Even if he's got some sort of an animal, a pilgrim leaves some things behind. 
Uh, he leaves some opportunities behind. He leaves some relationships behind. Because his priorities are always structured by what is going to help me along my pilgrim way. What is going to help me reach the destination that I'm aiming for. And with this in mind, we reach Peter's exhortation here, which is abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. This idea of fleshly lusts warring against the soul is an interesting one. Sometimes we see a sharp divide between what is what we call physical and what we call spiritual. I'm not a huge fan of the words physical and spiritual because of all the baggage that's associated with them. Uh, when we think physical, we think, oh, this is real, it's transparent, I can feel it, I can touch it, I can see it. And when we think spiritual, we think it's very, it's, it's transparent, it's sort of ephemeral and, and like a, a wispy thing. Um, I think perhaps better words to use would be, would be seen and unseen. Because what Peter is doing here is he's, he's disabusing us of any notion that the physical is unrelated to the spiritual. Um, they're, they're tied together. We are both body and spirit. And what we do with our flesh affects the soul and vice versa. Peter says, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. I want to think briefly <clears throat> about what it means for something that is fleshly, this fleshly lust, this passion of flesh, to war against the soul. Because when we interact with them, from Peter's words, we're receiving true words, true true wounds to our souls when we, when we succumb to these fleshly lusts. And I think that fleshly lusts wound our souls, they war against our souls in really three primary ways. First, I think they make us less effective and make us less effective in our ministries in the kingdom of Christ. Um, second, I think that fleshly lusts deprive us of heavenly reward. And third, in extreme cases, I think fleshly lusts, when they come to characterize the community of Christ, can make it very difficult to have faith in the first place. So uh, the, the, first, the first point is fleshly lusts war against the soul by making us less effective. So Hebrews chapter 12, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read one verse. Hebrews 12 says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So Paul, or whoever, whoever is a, a Freudian slip, whoever wrote Hebrews, is, uh, is saying that this, this Christian life is a race. So if someone ever says, it's not a race, yes it is, everything is a race. Right, Calvin? Everything is a race, right? <laughs> or a wrestling match, all right. So every, everything is a race or a wrestling match. But, but Paul, here, Paul here says that this, or whoever wrote Hebrews says, that we're supposed to run with endurance this race. So instead of using the, the image of a pilgrim, he uses the image of a runner. And runners, similar to pilgrims, pilgrims have to pack light. If you've ever known someone who's into backpacking, um, they'll, they'll buy these tents that cost $1,000 and they weigh two and a half pounds and they can put it in their, their backpack and, and carry it for long distances while they're hiking so they can set up. You know, there's all kinds of interesting equipment that's made out of very uh, low weight alloys that backpackers can carry. That's, that's the idea of a pilgrim. You're carrying very little, you have to travel with it. Uh, runners, you've seen runners, runners 
try to be as, as aerodynamic as they can. They, they lay aside everything that might slow them down. Uh, and that's the, the approach we should have to our Christian life. These fleshly lusts, the sin that so easily besets us, every weight, uh, it can make us less effective. It can slow us down as we, as we run this race, as we uh, travel this, this pilgrim path. And if you look at some of those examples that we read through and just briefly discuss, think about government, uh, uh, employers, spouses, if you succumb to fleshly lust in these areas, then you will be less effective. It will slow you down. Uh, if you get caught up uh, with, with a spirit of rebellion instead of submission toward government, and you're consumed with, with this spirit of, of rebellion and anarchy, and if a society becomes consumed with that spirit, then that society is going to suffer. It, it, will, it will be a huge distraction to anyone trying to walk the way of Christ, uh, and it will be detrimental to society. Similarly, if you, if you work for an employer and you're constantly uh, lacking patience and grace and submission with this employer, and you succumb to those fleshly lusts, and that's the way you act in the world, um, then you're going to have trouble. You won't be, uh, you won't advance. You won't, this, is just, this is just common wisdom. You won't advance. Things will be difficult for you, and because those things are difficult for you, you will become less effective uh, in your Christian walk. You won't be a good example uh, to others. You won't uh, uh, be advancing the way that you should be, and so, so finances could become uh, more difficult. And it won't be because of anything for Christ. It'll be because of your own fleshly lust that you're suffering. Uh, spouses, obviously, we can think of um, love and understanding is what we should have for our spouses, but if we succumb uh, to fleshly lusts, then, then uh, uh, suspicion and, and deceit and unfaithfulness and contention creep in. And when the home is destroyed in that way, uh, it would make us very ineffective at the least. So not only do fleshly lusts make us ineffective and destroy ministries, but they also deprive us of heavenly reward. Uh, William Carey, the some people call him the father of modern missions, has this, says this. He says, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. Um, it's possible to waste a Christian life. We've talked about this before, um, but it's an eternal thing, and I think it's worth mentioning again. Paul says, it is Paul this time, in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9, he says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. It's possible to spend your Christian life succeeding at things that don't matter. And on the last day, it will be revealed where efforts 
have been spent. I know we like to think of the world to come, of the unseen world, as unmitigated bliss for the believer. But the fact of the matter is that Paul here says, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. If you waste your life on fleshly lusts and wood, hay, and straw is all you build with, you will suffer loss. If you don't, and you build with gold, silver, precious stones, you will receive a reward. This isn't, this isn't a works-based salvation, but this does mean that what we do here in the flesh matters in eternity. We have to walk the pilgrim way in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. So finally, flesh and lust war against our souls. They're, they're making strategy against our souls in, in different ways. We talked about how they make us less effective, how they deprive us of heavenly reward. Finally, they make it more difficult to have faith in the first place. Fleshly lusts will always characterize the outside world, I think by definition. If we define fleshly lust to mean anything that distracts us from the pilgrim way, then those not on the pilgrim way, by definition, are pursuing exclusively these fleshly lusts. So they characterize the outside world. But when fleshly lusts come to characterize the community of faith, we create an environment for our children and ourselves in which faith can be difficult to have in the first place. We look to the example of our Israelite forefathers. The Bible tells us that these things were written as examples for us that we can learn and for our instruction. And in Hosea, Hosea chapter 4 says this. Uh, this is Hosea 4.12. My people ask counsel from their wooden idols, and their staff informs them. For the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray, and they have played the harlot against their God. The, the, the author Hosea here refers to the sins of Israel as the spirit of harlotry. And he says it's the spirit of harlotry that has caused them to stray. But the spirit did not only cause more evil, so it was evil, that they allowed the spirit of harlotry to take hold in their midst. And then it caused them to do more evil, but it did something even worse. In chapter 5, verse 4 of Hosea, just the next chapter over, it says this, They, Israel, their deeds will not allow them to turn to their God, for the spirit of harlotry is in their midst. That's really interesting. Their deeds will not allow them to turn to their God. Their sins had so consumed them and come to characterize that community so deeply that it prevented their repentance. Uh, a Bible commentator I read on this named Charles Feinberg said that sin makes us senseless. Sin makes us senseless. I want to think for a minute about a, a prominent modern catalyst for fleshly lusts. I say catalyst and not source, because the source of fleshly lusts is our flesh. <laughs> the flesh. Yeah, and, and, and Satan works through our flesh to, to, to try to get us to stumble. But this catalyst for fleshly lusts, I want to think about that. But first, let's turn to Galatians 5. Uh, Galatians 5, beginning in verse 19, 
We read this a couple weeks ago. I don't remember the context. Um, but it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. It's this list of what Paul here calls the works of the flesh. And I want to compare this list of the works of the flesh to what I think is the biggest modern catalyst for fleshly lust, which is the smartphone. Um, which is like, think about these lusts as adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. Would anyone dispute that the smartphone is one of the most, if not the most, prominent catalysts for sexually immoral behavior in the modern world? Hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, envy, selfish ambitions. Though this can be like any tool used for good, how often do we use it to view media that is manufactured and intended to anger us? How often do we allow our time on social media to lead to jealousy, envy, comparison? I've saved... For last, idolatry. I think sometimes uh, we can overuse the word idolatry and apply it to things that aren't truly idolatry. But in the case of this smartphone, I think it is an accurate word to describe our society's relationship to it. This is from the New York Times. It says, about a year ago, I noticed a distressing tendency in myself to drift off while the people I loved were talking. It didn't matter if they were talking about a book they had read, or recent health problems, or crushing grief, or revelations from therapy. Never before had I struggled to listen, but now I couldn't help keep checking out. I couldn't help checking out. Several times in the last year, my husband has had to ask in the middle of a conversation, where did you go? Where did I go? Nowhere good. Usually my mind returns to me to the small computer in my pocket, to an unanswered email, to a like, or a retweet, to a comment I found threatening or flattering, Though increasingly, any kindness I received through a device acted on my nervous system like derision. Suffice to say, I went away. In giving my attention to the device, I withheld it from the person I value most. And there were other troubling symptoms. It was hard to read or write for sustained periods, which is concerning, because that is my job. I was forcing myself to push through a handful of pages before reaching for the phone as a reward, orienting toward the activities I loved as if they were chores, chores, and toward the object as a source of pleasure, though it was more often a source of anxiety. I hadn't deliberately chosen to worship my smartphone, but when you repeatedly bow your head to something, stroking it thousands of times a day, it begins to shine like an idol. I hadn't deliberately chosen to worship my smartphone, but when you repeatedly bow your head to something, stroking it thousands of times a day, it begins to shine like an idol. And you look on the back of many of them, and there's the, the first sin, the bite out of the apple. It's not a symbolism happens, it's not an intentional. All right. So we didn't hit every item on Paul's list of fleshly lusts, but... That's more due to my inability to make connections with the smartphone than, than, uh, than anything else. It's a tool. It's very powerful. 
but it can be a catalyst for great evil, and we have to consider carefully our relationship to these devices. If Jesus' words to pluck out your eye if it causes you to sin, and to cut off your hand if it causes you to sin, have any meaning at all, then they would certainly extend to deleting applications or social media accounts, or even getting rid of the device entirely if that is the catalyst for fleshly lusts in your life. As pilgrims and sojourners, we must travel light. We have to lay aside every weight and abstain from the fleshly lust that would distract us from our pilgrimage. Okay, now how do we abstain? How do we abstain from Paul Peter's instruction? Uh, in, in verse 12, I think we find the key. Uh, verse 12 of, of 1 Peter 2, he says, Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. The purpose of good work, or the, the, the purpose of good works is here described. Um, by observing these good works, the Gentiles will glorify God in the day of visitation. But this mention of good works is a little bit non-secular. It doesn't follow from what Peter's already said. Um, he's told us to abstain from fleshly lusts, but where has he told us to do good works? Where do these come from? He says, by your good works which they observe. And I think that, that hidden in this is the key to abstaining from fleshly lusts. We abstain by pursuing with all of our resources so that no resources are left to pursue fleshly lusts. We pursue good works with all of our resources. First principle is you can't white-knuckle abstaining from fleshly lusts. Uh, Jesus tells us this principle in Luke 11. Uh, Luke 11, 24 says this. This is the words of Jesus. It says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest and finding none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he goes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. We are to do good works so that when unbelievers speak of us as evildoers, we might prove them wrong and not right. But, but how is it specifically that we're to do this? Well, I think that the, the principle here is that we have to fill that void, that space that was occupied by evil works with good works. Um, have you ever found uh, a particular sin or one of these fleshly lusts particularly besetting and troubling to you? And maybe you cut it out of your life completely for a time, and you, you swept the room and locked the door in your heart where that sin lived, and, but you kept it empty and you've not filled that space with anything. Um, well, have you noticed that perhaps in those moments where you're trying to just cut it out completely, that when that sin comes back, it comes back with a vengeance, uh, and you end up in a worse state than you were to begin with? And that's because we're weak. When we rely on our own willpower to remove sin in our lives and we set ourselves up for failure. The key here is that we walk in the Spirit. Again, Galatians 5, and for sake of time, you don't have to turn there, but I'm reading from Galatians 5, 16. It says this, Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. <coughs> this is suggested in our text, again. Peter talks about these good works that the Gentiles are beholding. Where do they come from? Well, it's because when you walk in the Spirit, that is the way in which you abstain from fleshly lusts. You abstain from fleshly lusts by walking in the Spirit. 
Um, and so when you, when you are struggling with a particular lust, then one of the things that you might want to do is compare, for example, the works of the flesh in Galatians 5 with the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 and focus on cultivating this opposite fruit in your life. And these are the fruits of the Spirit, so we rely on the Spirit for these. But if, for example, you're struggling with hatred and contention, well, then you pray and ask the Spirit to cultivate joy and long-suffering in your life. You go to his Word, and you pray, because remember the Spirit, John tells us, is our teacher. He illuminates the pages to our eyes. So you pray to the Spirit, you go to the Scriptures. Hebrews 10 that we're, we're, we're very familiar with, with Hebrews 10, especially in this, you know, this post-pandemic world. It was quoted so many times about the assembling of ourselves together. But the Hebrews 10, uh, 24 says, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You pray to the Spirit for, for strength. You go to God's Word. You cultivate relationships with other believers that will allow you to, to be encouraged in these good works. And you encourage other believers in good works, too. We're all, we're all members of the body of Christ, and we need to encourage one another. So, again, you, you look at the, the opposite, what's the opposite fruit of the Spirit. Maybe you're suffering with jealousy, envy, uh, selfish ambitions. These are some of the works of the flesh. Or maybe you, you cultivate and look for opportunities to, to exercise kindness, which is a fruit of the Spirit. Maybe you struggle with outbursts of wrath. Well, then you look for opportunities and you pray for the Spirit's power to exercise peace and self-control. Um, these are just examples. The main idea is focus on what you should be doing and not so much on what you shouldn't be doing. Cultivate the fruits of the Spirit, and, and give those opportunity and make no provision for the flesh. Um, finally, we see God glorified by the Gentiles observing these good works. Again, we talked about who these Gentiles are. They were unbelievers who were speaking evil against the, the, the audience. And, and this happens in our world. There's increasing hostility toward truth. Bible-believing Christianity, it's popularly portrayed as backward and, and hateful, as something to be maybe tolerated, but certainly never encouraged or promoted. Um, and this shouldn't be a surprise, and it shouldn't create anger and anxiety in us. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you, John 15. Uh, Peter's aim here is to ensure that his audience, and by extension, we don't allow what the world says of us to become true. They're speaking against us as evildoers, but don't take the bait. Maybe you've been told what you believe is hateful. Don't hate. Maybe you've been told that our hope is foolish. Don't despair. Maybe you've been harshly spoken to. Don't return the same. Jesus was reviled, but reviled not again. Um, this is obviously easier said than done, and we can only do it by looking to Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. Um, he suffered for us. It says in verse 21 of our chapter, chapter 2 of 1 Peter, Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. 
over follow his example. Um, and so how is it that these these unbelievers, these the Gentiles' observation of our good works glorifies God? Well, God is glorified when his excellence is displayed. I think that a good definition of the word glory, and I'd be happy to hear better ones because this is a, a word that I've thought about for a while now. I think a good definition of the word glory is excellence on display or displayed excellence. Uh, and I think that when displayed excellence is observed, the, the object displaying the excellence is glorified. And I think that when God's glory is is on display through the good works of the people that he's transformed, he is glorified. When unbelievers see believers using their resources, time, money, what have you, for good works, and these believers could, by all accounts, and should, or maybe used to, use those resources to pursue fleshly lusts, that testifies to the reality of Christ in the world, uh, and it glorifies God when those things are observed. Obviously, we can hear echoes of the Sermon on the Mount, you are the salt of the, the earth. You are the light of the world. What, what's the purpose of the light of the world? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify not you, but your Father, which is in heaven. So the purpose of good works is to glorify God. This will confuse unbelievers. First Peter says in, in chapter 4, um, Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 3 and 4, he says, We've spent enough of our past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to this, they, the Gentiles, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. But then Peter encourages his, his audience to look to that last day. He says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Uh, this day, I believe, parallels what Peter in our passage here in verse 2 calls the day of visitation. When God on the last day visits the world to judge the living and the dead, he will be glorified. He'll be glorified when he demonstrates his mercy and his grace in the salvation of those who receive Christ as Lord and Savior. And he'll be glorified when he demonstrates his justice on those who rejected Christ as Lord and Savior. Unbelievers who observe the good works of believers will remember the good works they saw. Some will remember the kindness and hospitality of a believer as the first tangible presence of Christ they felt that ultimately led them to receive him as Lord and Savior, and God will be glorified in their salvation. Others will remember how they further hardened their hearts against Christ after observing the good works of believers, and God will be glorified in their judgment. But all good works, all of your good works, when done for Christ, will testify on that last day in one way or another. They'll testify of Christ's power to save sinners. They'll testify he saved you not just to go to heaven one day, but to walk in the good works that he prepared for you. But at the end of it all, Jesus says, follow me. And you have two options. You can say like the man did to Jesus, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Or you can say nothing at all. Instead, you can follow the example of Peter himself. Matthew 4.18 And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. 
They immediately left their nets and followed him. Peter's nets weren't even bad things. But Peter couldn't take fishing nets on the pilgrimage Jesus was calling him to. If you choose to follow him and answer his call, you choose the way of the pilgrim. The pilgrim must leave some things behind. The pilgrim has to travel light. The pilgrim walks in the spirit and abstains from fleshly lusts. So think carefully. What kind of pilgrimage is God calling you to? Jesus says, follow me. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, the, the lesson that we are to abstain from fleshly lusts and things that slow us down. Uh, pray that you would help us to do this, help us to walk in the spirit and to uh, not walk according to the works of the flesh. Help us to, even this week, identify areas in our lives where we're being slowed down, hindered, and help us to identify with the help of your spirit uh, and other believers in our lives um, how we can lay these things aside so that we can run with patience the race that's set before us. Father, I pray that as we would, as we approach the Lord's table even now, uh, you acquired our hearts and help us to look toward uh, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who ran the race before us successfully. And we can look to his example. Uh, he suffered, he was reviled, but, but he didn't return in kind. Uh, he instead was righteous, and that's what he suffered for. Father, I pray that if it's your will that we should suffer, uh, it would be for righteousness and not for our own evil. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.